Brandon is going to be uh, preaching for us this morning. Uh, you guys, most of you know Brandon. He's been an intern with us in the past. He's a, a wonderful man of God. He's going to give us God's word from Psalm 4. I'm going to read that for us, and then Brandon's going to come up. So if you'd like to stand in reverence for uh, God's word. This is a Psalm of David. Answer me when I call, O God, of my righteousness. You have given me relief when I was in distress. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. O men, how long shall my honor be turned into shame? How long will your love, will you love vain words and seek after lies? But know that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. The Lord hears when I call to him. Be angry and do not sin. Ponder in your own hearts, on your beds, and be silent. Offer right sacrifices to put your trust in the Lord. There are many who say, Who will show us some good? Lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. You have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. In peace, I will both lie down and sleep. For you alone make me dwell in safety. Let's pray. Father, we give you this time. We give you ourselves to hear your word and to change us. Amen. Brandon, come on up. Good morning, Crossing Church. And happy Father's Day to all you dads out there. I know that my dad is here this morning, so happy Father's Day, Dad. I pray that you all get to enjoy the day. Hopefully the weather holds and you guys get to feel celebrated. So I heard some things this week that I felt like I had to bring before you and, and tell you. Uh, and it might sound disturbing. Did you know that there are Christians in the world who are cannibals? Cannibals. And not only are they cannibals, what I've also heard was going around is that they are incestuous. Which is pretty disturbing, right? They eat the flesh of their Lord, and they drink His blood. Brothers and sisters marry, and they call each other brother and sister and greet each other with a kiss. Sounds pretty disturbing, doesn't it? And above all that, they're actually atheists. They don't worship all of our Roman gods. They claim to worship the one true God, but they don't even have any statues of Him. These were some of the uh, many false accusations that the people in the Roman Empire would throw against Christians in the very early church. And oftentimes, these lies that were spread, they led to persecution and to the death of Christians. For example, in AD 64, a huge fire broke out in Rome. And this is about 31 years after Jesus' death and resurrection. And it burned for an upwards of nine days. And it is estimated that two-thirds of Rome was destroyed in this fire. And the emperor, Emperor Nero, who was legit crazy, needed to find somebody to blame this fire on. Because the people of the city were starting to think that the emperor himself was the one who started the fire. And so Emperor Nero chooses to blame the Christians. 
And Christians, they weren't well-liked anyway, so this would have been pretty well-received by the general public. And during this period and subsequent periods, Christians who refused to worship the many pagan gods were arrested and their execution was made a matter of sport. The historian Tacitus, who was there during the fire and who was no friend of Christians by any means, he said, some Christians were sewn up in the skins of wild beasts and savaged to death by animals. Others were fastened to crosses as living torches to serve as lights when daylight failed. The early church had to deal with a lot of false accusations, lies being spread about them, slanderous comments, their reputations being destroyed. Their honor was turned into shame. And we see something similar here in our passage today in Psalm 4. The psalmist cries out to God because of the groundless accusations that are being made against him. The psalmist is experiencing shame and slander from his enemies. And his response in times of trouble is to turn to the Lord. We will see that the psalmist moves from distress to safety. This prayer, this psalm, is a progression and is one that I'm sure that we're all going to be able to relate with in some way. So what I want us to walk away today knowing is that it is the Lord alone who brings us from calamity to confidence. It is the Lord alone who brings us from calamity to confidence. So before we jump into Psalm 4, I want to highlight some context. We see right away that this song belongs to the choir master. He is the chief musician. It says, to the choir master, with stringed instruments, a psalm of David. This psalm is meant to be used in corporate worship and in song and with stringed instruments. So he probably has the electric guitar in mind. He's probably got a punk rock flavor to it to accompany his lament in this psalm. And there's probably a lot of smoke and lights. Just kidding. But real quick, look at verse 8. Skip down to the bottom. It says, In peace I will both lie down and sleep. This psalm is known as the evening hymn. And it complements Psalm 3, which Daniel preached on last week. Psalm 3 was known as the morning psalm because in 3.5, David says, I lay down and slept, I woke again, for the Lord sustained me. So your give me application for the day is to read Psalm 3 in the morning and to read Psalm 4 in the evening because it is good for the soul. And because Psalm 3 and 4 are connected in this way, there are some who think that they share the same background and the same, the same context, uh, where David is on the run from his son Absalom. And this may or may not be the case, but I don't think there's enough data here in Psalm 4 to really connect the two. Uh, so we aren't going to assume that they share the same context, but that's not needed to really see what's going on here in Psalm 4. It's pretty evident as is. And there are seven different genres within the Psalms. And our Psalm today is a combination of lament and confidence. And so as we work through this psalm, we're going to see how it progressively transitions from lament to confidence. And we're going to see this progression in three steps. The first is a plea to God. 
The second is an appeal to enemies. And lastly, we will see a declaration of confidence. So again, we're going to see how the psalmist experiences this calamity and how he is moved and brought, as the prayer progresses, to a confidence in God. So, a plea to God, verse 1. Answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. You have given me relief when I was in distress. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. So the first verse of this prayer is immediately directed to God. And can you hear the urgency in his voice? He is praying with passion. He is not approaching God in a monotone way. God, answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. You have given me... No, he's saying, answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. You have given me relief when I was in distress. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. He is boldly approaching God. And notice that he comes before God on the basis of God's righteousness. He prays, answer me when I call, O God, of my righteousness. This is speaking to the character of God. The psalmist doesn't want to pray anything that would not be in accordance with God's character, namely his righteousness and his holiness. The psalmist is acknowledging that his righteousness is entirely derived from God's righteousness. He knows that there is no righteousness in himself. And we can be certain of this because the last line of verse 1 says, Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. He knows that he is a sinner. And even in this context, where he is being the one who is unjustly accused, he still is acknowledging that he is a sinner in need of grace. He says, God, show me mercy. Show me grace. Please, I'm undeserving. Show me mercy and hear my prayer. So even though the psalmist is coming out hot and he is shouting to God to hear him, he's doing so in humility. He is recognizing that he is sinful that he needs God's grace, that his righteousness does not come from himself, but it comes from God, and he pleads with God according to God's character. But now notice what the psalmist does between these two pleas in verse 1. This is really important. He recounts God's faithfulness in past situations. It says, You have given me relief when I was in distress. God has answered prayers in the past, so the psalmist is confident that he can do it again. God's past faithfulness is the basis for his current prayer in, God's, in his time of need. The psalmist remembers the Lord's goodness and faithfulness when he was in distress. And that word distress, in its biblical usage, primarily means in a tight place in a place of trouble. He is cornered, he is surrounded by his enemy. So the psalmist has been in some serious trouble before, and he recounts that God has given him relief in those times. And that word relief can also be translated as enlarged. So the psalmist is saying, when I was in a tight space, God enlarged me, and I broke free from that, and I was given relief. And what I picture when I, when I hear this is I picture two, two boxers in the ring. And one of them it starts to get momentum and he starts driving the other one into the corner. He has him pins. He is literally and figuratively in a tight place. 
And you could picture the boxer, right? He's, he's hunched down. He's trying to protect his head. And he's trying to protect his body from the left hook and the right hook. He is in a tight corner. And I just picture this is what the psalmist is experiencing. He is closed in around. He is in a tight place. He is in trouble. But God gives him relief. He enlarges him. So this would be like the boxer enlarging. He, he breaks free. He counters. And he gets to break free and he finds an avenue back to the middle of the ring. So what do you do in times of trouble? When you find yourself in a tough, tight situation, what is your first response? When you hear bad news, when you are grieving, when you are frustrated, when gossip is being spread about you, when you feel shame by those around you, and your heart is aching, what is your response? When trouble comes, turn to the Lord. Have that be your first response, not your last resort. Cry out to the Lord. God, answer me when I call. God hears you. He is an active listener. And the, authors, the author of Hebrews encourages us in chapter 4. He says, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. You see, Jesus enables us to pray in boldness. And when you do turn to the Lord, when you are in a tough spot and you turn to the Lord, recount God's faithfulness in your life. Recount the times that God has brought you out of this mess and be confident that He can do that again. Let that be the basis for your plea to God to help you right now. Our past experiences of God's faithfulness in our lives gives us the ability to pray confidently that God can show up and do it again. The Lord will bring us from calamity to confidence. So we see here in verse 1, the psalmist has made his plea before God. Now, we're going to see how he gives an appeal to enemies. So verses 2 through 5, an appeal to enemies. O men, how long shall my honor be turned into shame? How long will you love vain words and seek after lies? But know that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. The Lord hears when I call to him. Be angry and do not sin. Ponder in your own hearts on your beds and be silent. Selah. Offer right sacrifices and put your trust in the Lord. So the psalmist in his prayer is now addressing his enemies. And what's surprising here is is that he's not asking God to break the teeth of his enemies like he was last week in Psalm 3. No, he's actually praying for his enemies' salvation. He's praying that they would come to trust in and turn to the Lord. His lament now transitions to the psalmist preaching for his enemies. And the psalmist is praying to God, but he's praying in such a way that it is addressing these enemies. And the assumption here is that the enemies are overhearing this prayer. And he begins by asking these men, how long will my honor be turned into shame? It appears that the psalmist's reputation is under assault, perhaps unjust accusation, perhaps slander. He is definitely experiencing shame. And the men who are shaming him are some pretty significant dudes, actually. If you have a little footnote, probably, where it says, oh, men, and on the bottom of your Bibles, it may say, men of rank. 
So this is not just the everyday Joe who is slandering the psalmist, but these are some serious dudes who are unjustly shaming him. Uh, and there's some other verses to, that kind of help us get a sense for what the psalmist is experiencing. So I'll go ahead and have them throw some other versions on the, on the screen here, and I'll read them out for us. <clears throat> How long will you people turn my glory into shame? How long will you love delusions and seek false gods? How long will you people ruin my reputation? How long will you make groundless accusations? How long will you continue your lies? O ye sons of men, how long will you turn me glory into shame? How long will you love vanity and seek after leasing? That's my Irish translation there. Um, But I'm sure that we can relate with this, right? Has a rumor ever spread about you? Has your reputation been tarnished in the past? I hear those are pretty hard to repair. Have you been made to look like a fool in front of people whose opinion really matters to you? Have you had to deal with friends who gossip about you? Have you had to deal with coworkers who talk badly behind your back? And what is your usual response when this happens? Is it to pray for them? Is it to pray that the slandering and the shaming would, would, would cease and that they would turn from their ways? Sadly, and most often for me, it's, that's not the case. That's not my re- first response. Obviously, we want the, the gossip to stop, but I think we also want retaliation. We want to break some teeth. We want to fight fire with fire. We want to fight slander with counter slander. Oftentimes we'll seek out friends and complain to them and look for sympathy. I think generally we just want to complain. But what does the psalmist do? He turns to prayer. And he doesn't play the victim card. He doesn't throw himself a pity party. No, he actually does the opposite. He prays that his enemies would come to know the Lord. He asks, how long are these men going to continue in their vain ways? They are not pursuing truth. They are not pursuing God. They are pursuing lies. They are indulging idols. They have turned from the one true God and sought after vanity. This was the psalmist's response. So maybe right now, you find yourself as one who is being shamed. Or maybe you find yourself as one who is doing the shaming. Are you quick to tear others down? Are you someone who is overly critical of everybody? Are you caught right now in a web of lies? that You just cannot figure out how to escape? Are you one that loves to find yourself jumping in on the most recent hottest gossip? Do you use your words to build others up or to tear people down? The Bible has a lot to say about how we use our words and about the power of the tongue, the letter of James especially. And I think there's a verse in James that really shows the extent of which our words can have. In chapter 3, verse 5, James says, So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things, How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. The tongue, although small, 
can do great and awful things. The smallest spark can bring down entire forests. And we know this is painfully true here in Colorado in the dry, hot summers. So be watchful on how you use your words. Be watchful in how you use your tongue. How long will you seek after vain lies? Selah. Selah. Daniel talked about that word last week. It just means to pause, to reflect, to take a breath. Selah. The psalmist now moves to remind his enemies of God's love for his elect. In verse 3 it says, But know that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. The Lord hears when I call to him. And this verse is a great reminder that we who are in Christ Jesus have been chosen by God to be his people. And no enemy can snatch us away from the love of God. No one, no lie, no matter how great the accusation, can separate us from Jesus. And Paul preaches this in Romans 8. He says, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died, who more than that was raised, who is indeed seated at the right hand of the Father. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Answer, no one. No one can bring any accusation or charge against us that will separate us from God, so take heart in that. Verse 4. Be angry and do not sin. Ponder in your own hearts and on your beds and be silent. Selah. This was a difficult verse for me to wrap my mind around. Uh, is the psalmist, is he still addressing his enemies, like in verse 2? Or is the psalmist now addressing believers who are unjustly slandered and he's calling them to not sin in their righteous anger? And I read commentaries like I kind of take it both ways, so I think either interpretation is fine. But I tend to think that he is still addressing his enemies. And that Hebrew word that is in your ESV translation as angry or be angry, or anger or be angry, is translated in other versions as tremble or stand in awe of, or rage. So one commentator says that this verse means, do not sin by raging as you have done against me, the Lord's anointed, and indirectly therefore against God. So I think there's a sense here in which the psalmist is calling his enemies to tremble before God, to stand in awe of who God is, to submit to him, and therefore to cease from sinning. And I think this makes sense just given the general context of this psalm. This trembling before God, it comes when you are silent, in your room, on your bed, and pondering in your own hearts. And on your bed here is just a reference to a, to a private place. And for most of us, the bedroom is the most private place for us. It's where we escape to, and that's when the mask comes off. That's, we get to see who we really are when we are alone with our thoughts. What we really desire, what we really pursue, is revealed when we are left alone in our thoughts. And the psalmist, he is hoping that when his enemies are left to ponder, is when they will tremble before God. His hope is that they would sit silently and really ponder who God is. 
and in turn, that they would cease from their sinning. The psalmist again takes the breath. Selah. He ends here with a pause and reflection. He encourages his enemies, and by extension us, to quiet ourselves before the Lord and to reflect, to ponder who God is. Selah. And this prompts verse 5. Offer right sacrifices and put your trust in the Lord. So the psalmist prays that this standing in awe of who God is, this trembling, would lead to their repentance. He's saying, enemies, offer sacrifices for the sins that you've committed against God and turn to Him and place your trust in Him. And as the psalmist is praying this, it's probably very likely that this is also strengthening his own confidence in the Lord. He is progressively becoming more and more assured of God's faithfulness as this prayer goes on. In trying to help his enemies, he is unintentionally helping himself, I think. His initial cry to God is slowly becoming confidence in the Lord. And I think this is a great model for us to, to have as well. When we feel attacked by others, when we feel that we are being treated unjustly, we can look to the psalmist model here. His prayer for his enemies bolsters his own confidence in the Lord. And this doesn't surprise me necessarily. I think that, for the most part, we, we tend to be chiefly concerned with our own well-being. And I think this is just constantly reaffirmed in the culture with the motto of just making sure you've got to love yourself. Right? You've just got to love yourself. But when we are going through a difficult time and we turn to serve others, I think it actually tends to help us get out of the darkness that we are in. When we get our eyes off of ourselves and on to serving others, I think it actually helps us get through our own trial. And in this sense here in Psalm 4, through the psalmist's prayer for his enemies, he is unintentionally becoming ever more confident in who God is. And this ever-increasing confidence he is experiencing can be further seen in the next set of verses, verses 6 through 8, a declaration of confidence. Verse 6, There are many who say, Who will show us some good? Lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. You have put more joy in my heart than they have when their, wine, their grain and their wine abounds. In peace, I will both lie down and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. So verse 6 begins with the question, who will show us some good? And before we see how the psalmist is going to answer that, we have to say, well, who is asking that question? And I think it's a similar situation to back in verse 4 where there's a few options of who could be asking that question. It could be that the psalmist has some godly companions around him who are sharing in his distress, and they just cannot see how good can come out of the situation. Or, again, it could be the same group of men who are slandering him back in verse 2, which is what I tend to think here. It's the same group of, of men who are slinging around lies, who are chasing after false gods, and here I think we see their vain pursuits are coming up dry. Do they not know where to turn and they're finally crying out for help? Who will show us some good? Or are they complaining that they have not been shown any good by these false gods that they've been chasing? And now that they're wishing something good would come out of, there, out of this. 
Either way, the psalmist responds to this question by crying out, Lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. The psalmist is recalling the blessing that Aaron gives to Israel back in Numbers chapter 6, verses 24 to 26, which says, and you're probably familiar with this, The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make His face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up His countenance upon you and give you peace. The psalmist is reminded of God's favor upon him. He is again reminded that God, who has brought him out of troubles in the past, can do it again. The progression of the psalmist's calamity to confidence continues. And he declares in verse 7, You have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abounds. It was a heavy agrarian culture in this context. And when the harvest came, it was a, it was a big deal. There was a lot of expectation to come for a good harvest. And when it came, it was time to celebrate. Bread to eat and wine to drink. An abundant harvest rightfully produced joy. And the psalmist is saying, you know, I have more joy than when a great abundant harvest comes. It's like me saying, I have more joy from the Lord than when I'm grilling out burgers on a summer evening sipping an IPA. And Pastor H.B. Charles points out that the psalmist is not discounting the joy that comes from the harvest. He says, don't discount legitimate blessings. So stop and consider the many blessings that you have. And just think about it. You're here now. That means the Lord protected you last night while you were vulnerably sleeping. And He brought you here to worship this morning. I'd encourage you to spend some time today just rejoicing over the many blessings that you have in your life. Personally, uh, over the last couple months, I've, I've really struggled with discontentedness in my life. And studying the psalm these past few weeks have really allowed me to stop and to consider the many blessings that, that I have. And it's really helped get me out of this rut. Um, so I've, you know, I've just been, been thankful for a lot of things lately. And you know, I just recently celebrated one year of marriage. It was great. <laughs> Woo! Um, I found a lot of joy in just post-dinner, summer evening walks with our dogs. I recently joined a boxing gym, and I get to be physically active and move my body. After some serious TLC, our lawn is looking really lush and green. I'm learning so much right now in seminary that my wife and I are going through. I get to see this great church community each and every week, sans masks. And as I've really considered these blessings in my life, it's, it's definitely helped me get out of this season of discontentedness. I think the psalmist is calling us to just reflect on those blessings. Don't discount those blessings. They're important. But... I think the psalmist is pointing us to a greater blessing and a greater joy. And it's a joy that the Lord has put into the psalmist's heart. Because the reality is, is, as good as these blessings are that we get to experience on a daily basis, that we should be thankful for, they can also be gone in an instant. I could lose my wife, I could lose the dogs, I could lose the house, I could lose the job, I could lose my health, and then what happens? 
the psalmist is pointing us to a joy that is not circumstantial. The psalmist says, I have more joy in my heart than when I have an abundance of grain and wine. And this joy in the heart is not dependent on your situation. Because when joy is tucked away in the heart, when it's right here in the heart, guess what? It can't be stolen by anybody. When joy is in the heart, it cannot be taken away. Psalm 16:11 says, In your presence, Lord, there is fullness of joy. So rejoice in the many blessings that you experience, but rejoice even more in the joy that the Lord offers you that can be put in the heart. And joy is not all that the Lord offers. He also gives us peace. Let's look at this last verse together here. Verse 8. In peace I will both lie down and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. Here we see the climax of the psalmist's prayer. He started off in calamity, crying out to the Lord. And now his prayer ends in an absolute confidence in who God is. But note that his circumstance didn't change. He's still being slandered by his enemies. But the psalmist experiences peace in the midst of his circumstances. Although the storm is raging around the psalmist, he has an anchor. And you notice that it says, I will both lie down and sleep. How often do you lie down and then not sleep? Probably pretty often. I know that I do. This happens a lot for me. Uh, I struggle with, with sleep. Um, so much so that recently I bought a sleep tracker to try to uncover patterns or root causes for why my sleep is so poor. And it's got a bunch of data and graphs and charts. And I, I'm, I love it. It's super nerdy. But each morning it gives you a score out of 100. And it takes in a bunch of factors to consideration. And it, and it shows it to you. And I just, I cannot break in the 60s. Like, no matter what I try, like cold shower, like whatever it is, like it, I just cannot figure out what is going on. I don't know if you guys struggle with sleep as well as I do. I'm sure many of you do. Because obviously, sleep is of crucial importance. It affects our health, our mood, our productivity. It affects so many areas of our lives. And sleep deprivation is even an instrument used in torture which I hear babies and young kids love to employ. <laughs> we need sleep, and yet it can be so difficult to come by. Stress and worry keep us up. Our souls and minds can be so restless. We can get so caught up in things that we fail to find rest in God. When slander comes, when friends turn against us, when relationships crumble, when we hate our jobs, we become restless. And it seems that it doesn't even matter what kind of trouble it is. Even the slightest bit of trouble can cause us to lose sleep. It doesn't matter that you have the Rolls Royce of mattresses, that you're going to bed in a giant house, if you're sleeping next to the hottest wife, if you're waking up to a super successful job that makes you a lot of money. No, when, when trouble creeps in, we ain't sleeping. But, 
the psalmist says that's not the case for him. He says, no, no, I will both lie down and I will sleep. This is contrasted to back in verse 4 where he calls his enemies to sit silently on their beds and ponder who God is. He's calling them not to sleep but to tremble before God. While the psalmist, he is experiencing peace. He can lie down and sleep in peace because he understands where his source of peace comes from. And we need to look to that same source of peace, to the one who gives us peace. The second half of verse 8 shows that the psalmist understands where his peace comes from. He says, For you alone, for you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. His peace comes from the Lord alone. The storm is raging outside. The psalmist is sleeping peacefully inside. Augustine famously said, Thou hast made us for thyself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it finds its rest in thee. Our heart is restless until it finds its rest in thee. It is the Lord alone that can make us dwell in safety. It is the Lord alone who offers us peace. It is the Lord alone who brings us perfect rest. And peace is offered to us in Jesus. He is the Prince of Peace. Because it was Jesus who was truly innocent. It was Jesus whose honor and glory was turned into shame. Charles Spurgeon calls us to notice that everything about our Savior Jesus that was glorious was made the subject of scorn. A few lines from a song I really enjoy go like this. The infinite becomes infant. The maker becomes man. The divine becomes despised and the Christ is crucified. Jesus, in perfect union with God the Father and the spirits, emptied himself. He took on flesh. He became man for our sakes. But he wasn't treated with dignity. He wasn't worshipped and praised for who he was. No, he was shamed. The shame that the psalmist experiences here points forward to the shame that Jesus went through on our behalf. He was betrayed by his friends. Judas betrays Jesus with a kiss. The disciples fled. Peter denies Jesus three times. And although entirely innocent, he is brought before Pilate and Herod and scorned. He was mocked with a crown of thorns. He was robed in purple. Hail, King of the Jews, they shouted. The Son of God was humiliated, he was mocked, he was insulted, beaten, scorned, and finally, he was nailed to a cross. And Spurgeon says, instead of pitying Jesus, instead of pitying Jesus in, their, in his distress, they shouted, crucify him, crucify him. But Jesus, for the joy set before him, endured the cross. It was his love that led him there, and it was our sins that held him there. And as Jesus hung there, bearing the wrath of God on account of our sinfulness, they continued to mock him. So if you are the Son of God, if you truly are the Son of God, come down from the cross. And I can just imagine Jesus crying out, Oh men, how long are you going to turn my honor and my glory into shame? How long will you continue this? And I'm reminded of 
Isaiah's prophecy in, about the suffering servant in chapter 53. He says, He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities, upon him was a chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. Through Jesus' life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, Jesus has brought us peace. And this peace is freely offered to anybody who would quit chasing lies, quit chasing false gods, quit chasing idols, and turn and trust in Jesus. In John 17, 27, Jesus says, Peace I leave you with. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Jesus gives us a peace that the world cannot offer. A peace that surpasses all understanding. A peace that empowers you to remain in confidence and joy when the most difficult and trying of circumstances comes. He gives us a peace that allows us to both lie down and sleep. And if you haven't experienced this peace, I urge you, to look to the cross. I urge you to look to Jesus. So to conclude our time together today, I would just like to, to pray this psalm over us. I think that there are a lot in here who can, who can relate with experiencing shame and slander and destroyed reputations. I think we should just look to this psalm, look to this model, and ultimately look to Jesus. So, if you would please bow your heads with me, and I'll just pray this psalm over us. God, hear me when I pray. Please hear my cry. Please show me mercy. Be gracious to me, a sinner, God. I come before you, God, not because of my righteousness, but because of your righteousness. I know that you have shown up, and you've gotten me out of messes in the past, and I am confident, God, that you can do it again. I have enemies who despise me, they slander me, they are destroying my reputation, they want to see me fail. I feel shame. I am alone. But they do not know you, Father. They are godless and they are hopeless. How long are they going to continue like this? How long will they rebel against you, God? And I know that I need to turn my eyes off of myself and onto you, God. I know that you hear my prayer. Because by your grace, God, you saved me. Jesus, thank you for giving me your righteousness that enables me to come before the Father in prayer. Spirit, I know that you take my, my rambling words, my groans, my agony, and you make sense of them. God, I pray for my enemies' salvation. I pray that they would come to know your goodness. I pray that tonight they would tremble on their beds before you, tremble in awe, and that they would quake in fear, and that they would turn from their sinning, that they would quit sinning against me, but more importantly, that they'd quit sinning against you, a perfect, holy God. You saved me, God, and I know that you can save them too, if you will. 
These men, they chase after lies. They are reaping what they are sowing right now. They can't find good anywhere. They are totally empty. But God, you have shown me goodness, and I am confident that you will continue to show me goodness. Lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. I know because of you, Jesus, you look upon me with favor now, God. You smile upon me. You have given me so much joy, more joy than anything this world has to offer. And you've also given me more than joy, Father. You've given me peace. And I look to you, Jesus, who secured this peace through me, peace for me through your perfect life, through your death in my place, through your resurrection from the dead, and through your ascension to the right hand of the Father. Although my enemies are great, and although my troubles are many, I will both lie down and sleep in peace, because for you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. Amen.